Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. We're so grateful that you are here, and it is good to see my good friend, Pastor Bennard, sitting right down there up front. So I'm going to have to be on my best behavior this morning because he's right there staring at me. So I'm going to have to make sure that I, uh, I behave myself accordingly. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we are going to continue, as Pastor Ted alluded earlier, uh, to the series that we began a few weeks ago um, entitled Follow Me. And specifically this morning, we are going to take a second look at the demands that Jesus places upon those who would come and follow him. Already, if you've been with us in our study, we've learned that according to Jesus, someone who claims to be his follower, someone who claims to be his disciple, will be someone whose life is measured by more than just words. In fact, in addition than just simply claiming to be a Christian, a true follower of Jesus, a true disciple of Christ will will look like Christ. They will act like Christ. In fact, their lives will be patterned after the life of Christ. We are certainly going to be confronted with that truth as we examine our text today. But before we get there, just let me recap you what we learned in our first look at what the demands of following Jesus entail. We studied a passage last week from Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. And that sermon is likely to be up on our website by now. What we learned, however, though, was that following Jesus in that context demanded unconditional trust. And, and it also demanded an undivided affection. And it demanded an unreserved response. And, and as we looked through that passage, we came to this conclusion. This is the summary that I gave you in the sermon in a sentence last week, is that the call to follow Jesus demands total commitment. And it, and it demands that his kingdom be the top priority of your life. Now, getting that into our minds, understanding that it demands total commitment from us. To follow Christ demands our total commitment. And it demands that his, his kingdom be the top priority in our lives. Well, as we, as we consider that thought and move into our section this morning, I think that you will see how these two ideas dovetail together. Specifically this morning, I want us to begin in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 16 and just hear what Jesus says in four verses. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. For what profit is it to a man? If he gains the whole world, loses his own soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and for your mercy to us. And 
We're grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather in this place together as brothers and sisters in Christ to open up your word and then to be able to read it and allow your Holy Spirit to to use that which he has already authored now to, to speak to us in our present day context and in our the, 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 the busyness of our lives. You desire to even speak to us even now and to allow these words to literally leap off the page into our hearts and into our lives. And I pray that that would be what would occur today. Allow your spirit to speak to us. Give us attentive ears and an open heart. Allow your spirit to work in our lives for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. As we, as we approach our exposition of these verses today, I believe it's really necessary for, for us to understand the context in which we find them. Jesus says what he does here as part of an ongoing conversation and discussion that he's having with his disciples. Uh, even more specifically, we realize that these words comes on the heels of uh, what was a truly inspiring followed by a, a truly uh, embarrassing episode in the life of Peter. Back in verse 13 of, of Matthew 16, we, we read that Matthew tells us that, that Jesus was walking along the road to the town of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And as he does, it's as if he kind of looks around uh, and with sort of an expansive look. And, and, and I can just imagine him throwing his arms out. He says, who, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? <clears throat> and his disciples began to reply back to him based upon the various things that they'd heard said about him in the marketplace and, and perhaps in the street corners or in the synagogues, things that they had heard said about Jesus, they began to repeat to him. They said, well, many think that you are John the Baptist. Some think that you are Elijah or Jeremiah or some other prophet who has come along. And, and even though there was, not a, there was not a unanimity among their responses, there was not agreement among the populace regarding Jesus' identity, the fact that folks spoke of Jesus in the same breath with these highly respected men tells us that the people believed Jesus to, be, to belong to an elite group of prophets that God had sent to his people. And the truth is, if you were to poll people in our world today, if you were to go over here to the mall this afternoon, or if you were to talk to people at your office tomorrow, or, or if you were to talk to folks at school where you attend, or whatever the case may be, you would find many different kind of answers just like these regarding who Jesus is. Many people would say that Jesus was a great teacher. They would say that he was a loving person who embodied everything that was good. You would find folks who would say that Jesus set the perfect example of love that we ought to follow. He's a great example that we ought to pattern our lives after. In most cases, you wouldn't get a negative response as it pertains to the identity of Jesus. But listen, a non-negative opinion of Jesus does not mean that a person truly understands who Jesus is. In fact, to simply think of Jesus in, in charming little sound bites is really just another way of dismissing him. You can say something positive about him as a way of being able to just move him off of the horizon of your life as someone that you must have to deal with. 
And therefore, it is crucial that you and I have an accurate and clear understanding and knowledge of who Jesus is. And it's also important to recognize that each and every one of us must grapple with that question for ourselves. That was certainly true for Jesus' own disciples. We know that because Jesus turns the question back around to them. The question that he had posed with regard to the rest of the people that they had encountered, he now asks specifically of them, but who do you say that I am? The emphasis in that question is on the you. The question is no longer about the general public's opinion. Rather, Jesus is requiring his own disciples. Men who had left their homes and left their families, left their jobs and their careers to come and follow him, Jesus looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? He wants them to consider the evidence that they have seen, and he wants them to give a personal answer regarding his identity. And it's Simon Peter, it's Simon Peter, one of the very first disciples that Jesus called to come and follow him. He's the one that speaks up and he says in verse 16, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And the term Christ there is, is equivalent to saying that Jesus was the Messiah. It's, it's, in other words, Peter is saying that Jesus was more than just another prophet. That, that he was more than just a good man. That he was more than just a good example to follow. Peter states unequivocally that Jesus is the final prophet. He is the promised Christ. He is the son of the living God. And we know that Simon Peter's answer proved to be the right answer because in his account, Matthew tells us that, that Jesus looked at him and says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is looking at him and says, Peter, you've got the answer right. And yet what becomes evident is that full clarity and understanding regarding who Jesus is still had not yet come. As we'll see, even though he had the right answer, Peter still didn't truly understand the ramifications of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. We know that because of what happens next. We read the parallel. We read the parallel passage of this one uh, in Luke's gospel last week as a background to it. But, but here in Matthew, we read in verse 21 that from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. <clears throat> Jesus effectively says, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the king, but I, I came not to live, but to die. I did not come to take power. I came to lose it. I did not come to rule, I came to serve. And that's how I'm going to defeat evil. That's how I'm going to put everything right. And let me point out to you that Jesus said all of this must happen. In fact, that word must modifies and controls the whole sentence. Everything that Jesus says will occur must occur out of necessity. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. He had to suffer. He had to be rejected. He had to be killed. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says that the word must is one of the most significant words in the story of the world. And it is a scary word. What Jesus says was not that I've come to die. He said I have to die. 
It's absolutely necessary that I die. The world can't be renewed, nor can your life unless I die. You see, the fact that sin and death are always coupled together is what makes this concept so scary. What that means is that if Jesus had not died, then you and I must. And it's right here that the gospel message just explodes from this text. You see, it is my sin, your sin. It demanded, it necessitated, it required that Jesus, God's perfect, holy, righteous son, die in our place to pay the debt that you and I owed. And that's why he had to die. That's why he had to be rejected. That's why he had to suffer. And all of that had to happen that we might be set free. His loss was our gain. He achieved our forgiveness and secured our pardon, not by raising up an army, but by allowing himself to be raised up on a cross, giving up his life, dying in our place. And it's right here that we realize that the disciples didn't really understand who Jesus was. Yes, as Peter had so confidently stated, Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, but the kind of Messiah that Jesus is describing here, a suffering servant, a Messiah who came to rule from an, not from an earthly throne, but to die on a criminal's cross in utter shame and disgrace, well, that was more than Peter could take. So as we see in verse 22, Peter takes Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. That word rebuke is a strong word. It is a, it is a word that literally means to criticize and to reprimand sharply. So in effect here, Peter looks at Jesus and says, be quiet, Jesus. What you say can't happen the way you say it's going to happen. That's not what's going to happen to you. In his mind and in his spiritual blindness, Peter had thought that God's kingdom would come in power and in majesty and in glory. But, but Jesus was saying that it would come through rejection and through humiliation and through shame. And therefore, immediately after issuing his rebuke, Peter received one in return from Jesus himself. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Can you imagine the, the son of God looking at you and saying, you are an offense to me. Now, if we think that that is a harsh response from Jesus we must remember that in Matthew chapter 4, Satan tried to seduce Jesus to gain his rightful rule and authority apart from God's plan of suffering and death. And unwittingly, Peter has adopted the same mindset here in Matthew chapter 16. All the while, Jesus is showing that he had to go to the cross and he had to fulfill his Father's will for his life. So to recap what we've learned so far, Peter has correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, but his vision 
and his understanding were not as clear as they should have been. And consequently, his idea of what it meant to be a follower and disciple of Jesus was not clear. In fact, it was skewed as it was for all of the rest of the disciples. So Jesus immediately began to reveal to Peter and to the others the things that must happen, not only just for their salvation through what he would do, but what they must do in order to truly be his follower and his disciple. Now, all of that was introduction. (laughs) But I believe it was necessary introduction because all of that sets the stage for the verses that I read for you earlier, which are quite frankly some of the hardest words that Jesus says in Scripture. In light of everything that Jesus has just revealed about himself and his mission, he tells his disciples, look, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Son of Man will come in the glory of the Father and his angels and then he will reward each according to his works. What we need to realize is that what Jesus says here is his own definition of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is giving us his definition that, if we're honest, differs significantly from the way that the term is used in our modern culture. Jesus basically says that in light of the path that he would take, which is the path of obedience that would accomplish our salvation, the path that necessitated that he suffer and die, so must those who would be his followers also have to suffer. Therefore, we can say that Jesus is laying out for us his terms of discipleship, terms available, notice, to anyone who desires to come after him we have to recognize right up front that Jesus is not laying out terms that are only applicable to the super Christians, that are only applicable to to those whose God's called to go to foreign lands to be missionaries. No, he is saying that these, these definitions that he is laying out there for what it means to be a follower of Christ are for all and for any who would come and follow him. As Philip Graham Riken has written, what Jesus says here is for anyone and everyone who wants to be a disciple. And so with that understanding that this passage applies to all who would be his disciples, and I believe that includes every single one of us in this room, then notice with me the first point on your outline this morning. It's simply this, the requirements of discipleship, first and foremost, are defined by three verbs. The first verb is deny And therefore, the first requirement of discipleship is to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Jesus says if we're going to be his disciples, we must deny ourselves. The word deny is a very, very strong word used here in the Greek. It means to forget oneself entirely. It means to reject any thought of doing what will please ourselves rather than God. Various writers 
have offered their commentaries on what denying oneself entailed. I'll offer them to you. One has said, instead of gratifying ourselves or indulging ourselves in all the ways our sinful nature desires, we are called to deny ourselves, rejecting anything and everything that will get in the way of offering ourselves to God's service. Another has put it this way. The idea is that you are done with yourself. You are done with your ways. You are done with what pleases you. Your thoughts, your ambitions, and your desires all take second place to Jesus. You have surrendered your will to Jesus. What matters most is not yourself. What matters now is the one who you follow. And still another has put it this way. To deny oneself means to say no to sin. No to ungodly attitudes. No to unhealthy relationships. No to self-indulgent acquisitions. No to things that waste our time and God's resources. And no to physical pleasures that sap our spiritual strength. Brothers and sisters, what we cannot sidestep is that self-denial is a painful requirement to discipleship. And it is the first one that Jesus lists, and so therefore we recognize it is absolutely necessary. Understanding self-denial in this way makes sense, especially in the context, because Jesus, Jesus had done that. He had left the glories of heaven. Denied himself of everything that was rightfully his and belonged to him as the second person of the Trinity. And he came to earth to give it all away and to sacrifice himself so that you and I might be saved. Jesus also demonstrated this exact attitude when on the night before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was betrayed, he prayed to the Father, yet not my will be done. I deny myself, but thy will be done. So denying yourself is the first requirement of discipleship. But notice the second requirement. He says that you must take up your cross. You must take up your cross. In that first century context, the phrase to take up one's cross meant that, one, that any would-be follower of Jesus must be willing to bear the pain of persecution that comes along with being his disciple. Sometimes today we refer to cross-bearing in other ways. We refer to it as a sickness or perhaps even a a difficult situation that we find ourselves in or we talk about bearing our cross means that we have to deal with a difficult personality that's in our lives. Unfortunately, equating such trials as bearing the cross actually trivializes, drastically minimizes what it would have meant in the first century context. You see, Jesus' disciples knew exactly what he meant when he said this. To take up one's cross literally meant to go out and die. You see, the, the cross was, was the means by which the Roman government executed those most heinous criminals and those who were insurrectionists to their authority and to their rule. And ultimately, we know that to bear the cross was what Jesus did when he carried the heavy cross beam on his own back and he bore it up to Calvary's hill where he was ultimately nailed to it. The cross was an instrument of public shame and torture used for the execution of criminals. 
And therefore, when Jesus places the requirement of taking up one's cross upon any would-be disciples, he is telling them that they would have to bear the pain and persecution that comes along with being identified with him. It's an allusion to allegiance and to obedience. The disciple must be ready to share Jesus' fate of rejection in this world, even death if necessary. As one writer has put it, a cross-bearing disciple is the only kind of disciple that there is. Philip Ryken has written, How could a Savior who gave his life for us be content with anything less than seeing us live our lives for him? So the requirements for discipleship are to deny yourself, they are to take up your cross, and then the third one is this, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Now, these are the words that we've heard Jesus say a couple of weeks ago when he called Peter, Andrew, James, and John out of their fishing boats to come and come alongside him. It's the same one that we heard him give to Matthew when he said, follow me. And it's the same one that we heard him give to a would-be disciple last week who, when, when presented with that command, decided to try to negotiate with Jesus. As we've noted on these occasions, so we recognize here that following Jesus means to come along behind him and to follow in his steps, steps that, as we have already seen, lead down the road to self-denial and require us to be willing to follow him all the way to death. So if it is these three verbs that lay out for us the requirements of discipleship, then let me ask you to think about them introspectively for just a moment and ask yourself, am I truly a disciple of Jesus? Am I leading the kind of life that Jesus is describing? Is self-denial evident in my life? Can I honestly say that I am taking up my cross? That I'm experiencing rejection and suffering for the cause of Christ? Am I following Jesus? Willing to go wherever he leads me? Am I willing to do whatever he calls me to do? Am I willing to sacrifice what I have? Willing to be despised? Willing to be forgotten because I work in some obscure corner of the world? Am I willing to surrender my leisure time because of some work he has laid upon me to do? Willing to... Willing to surrender a cherished hobby or a pastime so that I can devote more time to God's service. I I want you to know these are tough questions. Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Brothers and sisters, that is what real true discipleship requires. It's more than simply acknowledging something good about Jesus. It's more than simply identifying yourself as a Christian. To be a disciple is costly because it involves losing yourself in the life of Jesus, which is exactly where Jesus moves the conversation in the final verses. 
Notice Jesus moves from the what to the why. He moves from the, from the requirements of discipleship to the reasons for discipleship. That's the second point on your outline. It's the reasons for. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 25 that those who are willing to lose their lives are the ones who will save them. And the first reason for discipleship is simply this. It's your life. Your life. The clarity of what Jesus says here cannot be missed. The comparison here is between your life on this earth and life in eternity. If you seek to keep your life here on earth by living for yourself rather than dying for yourself, then you will lose it in eternity. On the other hand, if you seek to lose your life here on earth by denying yourself here on earth, by taking up your cross here on earth, by, by following Jesus here on earth, then you will find it in eternity. Consider the fact that James 4 verse 4 tells us that all of our lives are just like a vapor. They're here for a moment and then they're gone. The life to come, however, will last forever. And therefore, if you want to save your life forever, you've got to lose it for Christ's sake today. It's what Jesus says. And I want you to know such a concept goes completely against everything that's ever been ingrained in us. Everything in our cultural norms tells us that we're number one. So we've got to pamper ourselves and we've got to save ourselves and we've got to do for ourselves and, and comfort ourselves. Jesus, on the other hand, says that if we are preoccupied with saving ourselves, the very attempt to save ourselves will result in our destruction. So why should we deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus? Well, the first one reason that he gives us is because of our life. You, it's how you will live forever. The second reason for discipleship is your soul. Your soul. Jesus says in verse 26, for what profits is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Here he speaks of the soul's immeasurable value. There are many stories that are told, many movies that have been made, apocryphal and perhaps true, about someone who has sold their soul in order to achieve fame and fortune and success. Such stories reveal just how prone we are to place great value upon what a person enjoys externally. Things like income and possessions and reputation and even looks. The attitude of the world is that the more someone has, the more, the more someone is at that point. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 verse 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And to illustrate his point, he told a parable about a man whose farm had produced many, many crops to the degree that he decided to tear down his old barns and build new barns. And he said to himself, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You're a fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will all these things be that you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich man in Jesus' parable sought to protect and he sought to preserve life only during this short time on earth. Advancing his earthly life was his only agenda and he sought to save what, as it turns out, he could never keep. He built his empire on that which was scheduled for demolition. And in the process, he lost that which was an infinitely greater value. He lost his own soul. And therefore, that's why Jesus even here asked the question, 
For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Listen, embedded in those questions is a lesson in spiritual economics. Jesus is saying that we may profit to the point of owning the entire world and everything in it. But if gaining that profit happens at the cost of our souls, there really is no profit at all. Rather, we have sacrificed that which is supremely valuable for that which is worthless by comparison. Tragically, there are people every day that are losing their souls in the pursuit of that which will not last. How much better to lose the whole world and to follow Jesus instead? So the reasons for discipleship are your life, your soul, and then finally the judgment. The judgment. The last verse of our text states, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. As one has written, there is coming a day when we will face Jesus. He will look at your life. He will evaluate it. The question is, what will he find when that day comes? Will will he find that you have lived your life for yourself rather than having denied yourself for his sake? Will he find that you valued comfort over taking taking up the cross? Will he find that you pursued the things of this life rather than following him? How horrible to stand in judgment and see that you have gained the perishing world and lost everything of eternal value in the process. On the other hand, we have this example. The Apostle Paul lived his life on earth in the confident expectation of the return, of the day of Christ's return, and and he was even willing to lay down his life for Christ because of his hope in that day. And just before he was executed for his Savior, Paul wrote these words in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And listen, and not to me only, but all those who have loved his appearing. His reference there is to all of those who have truly become Jesus' disciples. And Paul's words echo the words of Jesus here. That all who will deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him will one day receive their reward. And all of this then, brothers and sisters, leads, leads us back to where we started. And where we started was, was trying to ask, what are the demands of following Jesus? What? What am I signing up for if I choose to follow Christ? So I would summarize what we've learned today this way in my sermon in a sentence. To follow Jesus, we must be willing to give ourselves up to God and die to a life centered on this world. Knowing that all the temporal things we lose will be replaced by the infinitely greater and eternal rewards of heaven and the joy of forever being with our Savior. Listen, what all that means is that to identify ourselves with Jesus, to be one of his disciples, 
is, is, is infinitely more than just cheaply claiming to be a Christian. As Jesus said, it will require us to lose everything for his sake, just as he sacrificed himself for our sakes. What we must ask ourselves is, will we follow Jesus or will we go our own way? Will we take up our cross or will we leave it behind? Will we keep our lives for ourselves or will we give them away for Jesus? How we answer those questions and the decisions that we make will ultimately determine our destinies. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, your words are hard, and we acknowledge it. We admit it. It confronts us at just about every turn in our lives. Father, there's not very many places that we can look and we can not see how we're confronted by the very words that you have spoken. And yet, if your word is true, and we believe it is, then what it demands is that we have to not simply be confronted with the truth, but that there's repentance that needs to take place. In my life, and I dare say in the lives of many who have been here listening to this sermon and listening to your Holy Spirit speak to them this morning, repentance is necessary because... Otherwise, we can't truly follow you. We may say that that's what we're doing, but our lives do not reflect that truth. So, Father, we are confronted with our own hypocrisy this morning from your very words. Now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring that conviction and allow repentance to occur so that we might be reconciled to you, restored to you, Lord, our hearts desire to follow you. But the truth is, our flesh desires to go another direction. So I pray that that war that is raging in our minds and our hearts right now, that we would be won out by the precious blood of Christ. We offer ourselves to you afresh and anew again this morning, asking you to do your great work of conversion in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.